Fox News daytime ratings have completely collapsed. Weekend daytime, even worse. Very sad to watch this happen. But they forgot the one. They forgot what made them successful. What got them there? They forgot the golden goose. <laughs> the only difference between the 2016 election and 2020 is Fox News. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. Happy Thanksgiving, folks. Emily Murphy finally did her job in ascertaining the 2020 election. On Monday, in a letter from the General Services Administration, Murphy announced that the Trump administration is ready to begin the transition process. Hallelujah. Emily Murphy, the administrator of the General Services Administration, officially signed off on releasing federal funds and other federal resources to the now President-elect Biden's transition team. Murphy says she strongly believes that the law requires her to do so. And she says her decision is not based on fear or favoritism. The letter is a mix of bureaucratic housekeeping and a craven attempt to protect her own legacy and most likely future job prospects. She writes, I have dedicated much of my adult life to public service and I have always strived to do what is right. To be clear, I did not receive any direction to delay my determination. I did, however, receive threats online, by phone, and by mail directed at my safety, my family, my staff, and even my pets in an effort to coerce me into making this determination prematurely. Even in the face of thousands of threats, I always remain committed to upholding the law. While I don't condone threats or harm to anyone, don't ask for a pat on the back for finally doing what's right and just. Emily Murphy caved to the demands of a despot and subverted the will of millions of votes with her delaying tactics. This wasn't a complicated situation. You do what the law dictates. She chose to do the bidding of Donald Trump instead. This election was stolen by a collection of international leftists who manipulated vote tabulating software in order to flip millions of votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Does this mean the war is over? I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Not quite. In response to the letter of ascertainment from Murphy, the president almost gave a concession speech, stopping short to maintain the fraud fiction, likely for fundraising purposes, that the fight goes on by tweeting. I want to thank Emily Murphy at GSA for her steadfast dedication and loyalty to our country. She has been harassed, threatened, and abused, and I do not want to see this happen to her, her family, or employees of GSA. Our case strongly continues. We will keep up the good fight, and I believe we will prevail. Nevertheless, in the best interest of our country, I am recommending that Emily and her team do what needs to be done with regard to initial protocols and have told my team to do the same. I'll tell you last, it was a rough week. My psychiatrist told me I'm going crazy. I said to him, if you don't mind, like a second opinion. He said, all right, you're ugly too. Several factors came together, or rather fell apart for Donald Trump to acquiesce to this transition. I don't buy for one second that he didn't give his approval for Murphy to proceed, but he will leave it as her decision so he can later say he was forced to deliver his almost concession because of Murphy's actions. 
In his mind, he's still the victim of a vast conspiracy to deny him the election, and Murphy's ascertainment is based on fraudulent votes and not the will of the people. By pledging to continue fighting, Trump can also continue to fill the coffers of his election defense fund. It's really destroyed our system. It's a corrupt system, and it makes people corrupt even if they aren't by nature. But they become corrupt. It's too easy. Trump finally recognized that he was defeated on all counts, a technical knockout from the consecutive court losses and the vote certifications in Michigan and Georgia. Still, he would have likely continued to fight on if it were not for the last Thursday's Giuliani presser at the RNC headquarters. It was a magnificent shit show of epic proportions. Historians will analyze the tape from this 90 minutes of political theater like the Zapruder film to find the precise moment that Trump lost his nerve. My guess is that watching Rudy melt like a fucking wax figurine under the hot lights sent the president into a rage. He is an incredibly vain and shallow man who values appearance above and beyond just about anything. In Rudy, he was watching his proxy become a walking punchline and by proxy, himself. Somehow, someway, he awoke from his own madness to recognize the futility of this fight. He knows a loser when he sees one, and suddenly it was staring at him in the mirror. Quite frankly, I mean, you know, we used to go supervise elections around the world, and we were, we were the most respected, uh, you know, country uh, with respect to elections, and now we're beginning to look like uh, we're a banana republic. Um, it, it, it's, it's time uh, for them to stop the nonsense. It just gets more bizarre every single day, and, and frankly, I'm embarrassed that more people in the party aren't speaking up. But let's take a trip down the rabbit hole for a moment and look at Sidney Powell. With her connection to QAnon, Powell represents the Republican Party's worst nightmare. Trump made it okay for these crazies to come out into the light. By making Powell part of his elite strike force, he was elevating her beliefs to a position of great prominence. Trump only liked the idea of QAnon because they voted for him. But to see one of them in the flesh and listen to them unspool their bullshit is a completely different matter. For believers, Q is an anonymous government official who posts classified information about a covert battle between the president and a malicious ring of celebrities, political elites, and the so-called deep state. This anonymous poster, Q, was giving secret clues about becoming quote, great awakening. The central theme here is that Hillary Clinton and many of the world's other politicians and celebrities are members of a murderous child sex ring. Hillary Clinton, Oprah Winfrey, Tom Hanks, and others eat children in order to extract a life-extending chemical from their blood group. Recognizing that he made a huge blunder and undermined whatever shred of credibility he was hanging on to, the campaign disavowed Powell. Never mind the fact that she turned the president onto the idea of Dominion voting systems being a Venezuelan cabal created by Hugo Chavez and funded by George Soros. I can't quite capture all the crazy here, so I'll let Sydney here do the explaining. One of its most characteristic features is, is its ability to flip votes. It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden, which we might never have uncovered had the votes for President Trump not been so overwhelming in so many of these states that it broke the algorithm that had been plugged into the system. And that's what caused them to have to shut down 
in the states they shut down in. Uh, Georgia's probably going to be the first state I'm going to blow up and, and Mr. Kemp and the Secretary of State need to go with it because they're in on the Dominion scam with their last minute purchase or award of a contract to Dominion of $100 million. The State Bureau of Investigation for Georgia ought to be looking into the financial benefits received by Mr. Kemp and, and uh, the Secretary of State's family about that time. The official letter from the campaign reads like a restraining order trying to erase Powell from our collective memory. Sidney Powell is practicing law on her own, reads the statement. She is not a member of the Trump legal team. She is also not a lawyer for the president in his personal capacity. Highlighting just how deranged Powell's conspiracy theories have become, even fucking Tucker Carlson, Fox News' go-to conspiracy guy, rejected them on his show on Thursday night. Hey, Tucker, what happened? So that's a long way of saying we took Sidney Powell seriously. We had no intention of fighting with her. We've always respected her work. We simply wanted to see the details. How could you not want to see them? So we invited Sidney Powell on the show. We would have given her the whole hour. We would have given her the entire week, actually, and listened quietly the whole time at rapt attention. That's a big story. But she never sent us any evidence, despite a lot of requests, polite requests, not a page. When we kept pressing, she got angry and told us to stop contacting her. When we checked with others around the Trump campaign, people in positions of authority, they told us Powell has never given them any evidence either nor did she provide any today at the press conference. Powell did say that electronic voting is dangerous, and she's right, we're with her there. But she never demonstrated that a single actual vote was moved illegitimately by software from one candidate to another, not one. So we've arrived at this seemingly important historic moment, which in all reality should have zero import. But Trump's constant assault on the norms of government have made even its most basic functioning seem like a miracle. Are we now supposed to be thankful for the president's gracious act of beneficence? Fuck that! What an incredible waste it all was! The symbolic endpoint of the Trump administration was this year's annual turkey pardon, a strange and myth-filled White House tradition that goes back to the Kennedy administration. This year, though, it seems wildly out of place and almost surreal. The turkeys, corn and cob, have been staying at the Willard Intercontinental Hotel and only one will appear at the White House, decided by a Twitter poll. The other will go on Trump's table at his super spreader Thanksgiving feast. But the president loves these moments in front of the camera as they allow him to play the part of president without actually having to do anything. Like the parades or the fireworks show above Mount Rushmore, these are the perks of the job for which he ran. The rest of the work he actually loathes. But to stand in front of the cameras and ham it up and mercifully deliver a pardon, that's Trump in his element. To him, it's even presidential. But it's not. It's an opportunity for the president to project normalty at a most abnormal moment surrounded by the White House and props of Americana. We're here today to continue a beloved annual tradition, the official presidential pardon of a very, very fortunate turkey. Because Thanksgiving is a special day for turkeys, I guess probably for the most part not a very good one when you think about it. The first turkey to dodge the White House dinner table received unofficial clemency when President Abraham Lincoln's son, Tad, begged his father to spare his new friend. For the past 73 years, the National Turkey Federation 
has presented the national Thanksgiving turkey to the President, starting under President George H.W. Bush. These birds have received a formal pardon every single year. Today is my honor to present to you this year's lucky bird, Corn, and just in case we needed him, Cobb. Corn and Cobb, that's not too hard to remember, is it? In 2018, in an eerie foreshadowing of the 2020 U.S. presidential election, Trump pardoned a turkey named Carrots, who had lost a fair and open election, over which two turkeys should be spared. According to Trump, Carrots was the loser of the election, but refused to concede and demanded a recount. And even though the result did not change, Trump mercifully granted a pardon to both Carrots and the winning turkey. This year, though, it is Trump that is literally the turkey. The question moving forward, though, is, will he pardon himself? The winner of this vote was decided by a fair and open election conducted on the White House website. This was a fair election. Unfortunately, Carrots refused to concede and demanded a recount, and we're still fighting with Carrots. And I will tell you, we've come to a conclusion. Carrots, I'm sorry to tell you, the result did not change. It's too bad for Carrots. In the wake of these questions, I decided to reach out to a stalwart of the White House press corps, Brian Karam, who has covered every president since Ronald Reagan for a variety of outlets, most recently Playboy and CNN. Karam became a press corps cause celeb after a 2019 Rose Garden altercation with future back pain medication pitchman and right-wing faux-intellectual asshole Sebastian Gorka. After engaging in a shouting match with the alt-right troll, Karam had his pass revoked by the White House for 30 days, only for a federal judge to order his reinstatement. Most recently, it was Karam who shouted the question heard around the world, which kicked off the election crisis when he asked the president if he would commit to a peaceful transfer of power. We all know what happened next. Karam gives a fascinating inside look on what it's like to try and cover a president who does nothing but fucking lie. The man deserves a medal just for having the fortitude to endure the daily presence of Kaylee McEnany and her breezy, fact-free declarations and cozy fascism. Thankfully, his pain was our gain as he provided me with tremendous insight into the various personalities that slither and crawl inside the White House. So let's listen now to that conversation. Alrighty, Brian, so thank you so much for joining us on Mea Culpa. Let's just jump straight into this because we have a lot to talk about. In your November 12th column for Playboy.com, you wrote, Trump never thought he'd lose. His rallies, his impeachment survival, and recovery from coronavirus convinced him that he was invincible. As it turns out, the con man conned himself. Now he's trying to con the rest of us one more time. In your mind, what's the outcome of the con? Is he trying to set the stage for the 2024 election? Or is it a cash grab to fill the coffers in his defense fund? Or lastly, is he shoring up the base to convert them into Trump news subscribers? 
<laughs> all of the above. I, a, I don't think he's going to run in 2024. I think he want, he'll end up trying to set himself up as a kingmaker. Sure, he's it, it's always a money grab with Donald Trump. He's a con man. So I, I figured, as I wrote in the column, I figured he's looking at his voters, figuring out how he can exploit them for money on a monthly basis and uh, make some money off of it. Yeah. And and, and if he ends up going to uh, uh, owning or buying a, a television uh, market or a television uh, network. Yeah, that he'll want them for that. But with Don, I don't think he thinks, I mean, you know him better than I do, but I, I get the, to me, he's, I, I know this guy, he's a con man. He's just trying to fly by the seat of his pants, make as much money as he can off of his people. And if he's got something he can stow in a pocket for down the road, I don't think there's any large overall plan. It's always a con, always a grift, always trying to move on to the next uh, greatest thing. I, I don't think he ever really wanted to be in the White House. He certainly never wanted to govern. So he, he I, I think he used the White House as a as a money grab for him and his family. So you know that one of the things that they like to say is that Trump lost money being president of the United States. Now, remember something. Anytime <laughs> Donald Trump tells you something, you know you have to believe it's that it's a lie. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> what will ultimately come out now with this Biden administration is you're going to start to find out that the grifter in chief, along with his scion, whether it's Don or Eric or Ivanka and Jared, that they've been grifting the government and what will ultimately come out is the fact that they made money off of the country. Yeah. And that's what I believe that you're that you're seeing right now with the Trump news subscribers. And I've said this before on um, other podcasts as well as on television. I legitimately believe that Donald Trump inaccurately believes his 100 million social media followers are all fans of Donald Trump, willing to follow him because he sees on television or he sees as he's driving around the supporters that came out to protest the result of the election, the Proud Boys, the, you know, the Wolverine, these groups. In regards to that, you're absolutely right. For example, everyone was scared to death when he said in the debates, Proud Boys, stand back, stand by. And people were scared to death that Donald Trump was going to call forth a civil war. Saturday, we found out what Donald Trump wanted out of the Proud Boys. He wanted them to show up and cheer him as he drove to his golf course. That's all he wanted. He, he needs attention. He's a con artist and he is a narcissist. And when you put all of those together and put him in the uh, the presidency, you got a recipe for disaster. And four years afterwards, everybody's going, hey, you know, <laughs> let's get rid of this guy because he is exactly as you said, those he believes he's the con man who conned himself. He believes those hundred million followers love him. Half of them hate him. Half of them, you know, maybe a quarter of them don't even care about him. They're, they're you know, like me, I'm on the damn feed because he's the president of the United States. Once he's not the president of the United States, I have no desire to follow what he says anymore. I don't care. The only reason why any of us care in the White House press corps or anybody in the media is because he's the president of the United States. Now, you can make the argument that we helped create him, and I wouldn't disagree with that. But I think we've all had enough of him. And after he's gone, 
bye-bye. Yeah, well, we call that uh, Trump fatigue. We're all just basically (laughs) exhausted of the nonsense and the bullshit that goes on every single day. I mean, look at, here's something that I also said prior to incarceration and then actually when I had gotten out the first time. I said that Donald Trump is willing to start a war in order to remain president. Don't be shocked with what he's doing right now when I see he's looking to pick a fight. He wants to go to war with Iran, thinking that he'll be able to stay in power because you don't want a transition of power during wartime. The man is absolutely sick, and there's no other way to describe it. But I want to talk about another tweet that you did on November 12th when you tweeted out, overheard at the White House, we haven't seen lame duck a l'orange all week. Maybe he's still marinating. Was this from a staffer or from a White House worker? And if so, are you, are you part, party to all manner of off-the-record grievances from fed-up Trump staffers? Because they must be absolutely done with all of this between the election madness and the COVID infections and the, the stupid shit that he's pulling on a daily basis. Well, yeah, I... I told him I would never see who that was, but you got that right. The, there are the poor White House staff. It's like a weird dysfunctional family. Some need therapy. Some need sedatives. All of them need relief from the last four years. Even the true believers. I mean, all of them are probably secretly looking forward to that last day on the job, except maybe Stephen Miller. He's so clueless. He's the guy in a horror movie who chooses to hide in the graveyard. I mean, he's not that bright, but um, he is that diligent. But yeah, I, I am privy to uh, those who are exasperated, exhausted, tired of it, and wish it were to end. And then some of them um, believe firmly they drank the Kool-Aid and firmly believe that only Donald Trump can save us and they're here for the long haul. I think uh, some of the younger staffers will survive this administration. I think some of the senior staffers will uh, have a hard time finding uh, jobs going forward, except that it may be OAN or Newsmax or working for Hannity or something. I think they're pretty well screwed. Yeah, I'm not really sure that their possibilities are plentiful when you show up with a resume that says former so-and-so under the Trump administration, because he's so despised by more than 50% of the country. I can't think of an industry you're right. Other than Fox News, who he's not doing well with right now. I can't right, right. I can't think of an industry where somebody would say, oh, great. You worked for the Trump administration. I don't have any clients or customers or or business relations with anybody that hated Trump. So therefore, you'd be a great <laughs> fit with us. Right. I mean, it's kind of like a shit stain on your resume. I call it a blood stain, but the shit stains just as good. I mean, there's blood under the the big problem with him. And we're laughing, but the big problem with, or at least I am, because I don't know what to do after four years, laugh or cry. I'll be here all week. Try the veal. But, you know, I, I have to laugh a little bit, but it's serious stuff. I mean, think of all the people that have died, 250,000 people from the COVID virus, the people that have been put in cages, the kids that have been separated from their parents. The selling off of the land, you know, he's trying to do that now in the Arctic, uh, getting us out of the climate accords. Uh, all of the things that he's done has contributed to making life on the planet Earth more difficult for everyone, even including those that support him. 
So it's not like this guy is is going to be remembered fondly from, you know, through history and those who work for him, particularly those who put themselves out there in front of the cameras defending him with, you know, the, the Bowling Green massacre and the alternative facts. I'm thinking of Kellyanne Conway right now or Sean's. I mean, where'd Sean Spicer end up dancing with the stars? I mean, I think he's now got a show somewhere on a small network, but it's not going to be pretty for those people. And there's a reckoning. And, and you know, it's he's made it very hard. He's made it harder for the left and right to get together in the middle yes. is what he's done. So I think Sean Spicer went off to Newsmax, which makes perfect sense. You know, you're just playing to your own party. But prior to that, he ended up over at the RNC, which is where all the Deadwood goes. I mean, if you think about it, look <laughs> at what they did or tried to do with Omarosa. They had Lara Trump, Eric's wife, turn around and try to pay her off at $15,000 a month or 180000 a year to keep her mouth shut and not to talk about what's going on. I know that there are 15 or 20 people there. I mean, you want to talk about a great grift? Right. Anybody that leaves, they're afraid because people know the truth of what's really going on behind closed doors. So to keep them quiet, they bring them to the RNC. Now, here's the thing that Republicans, most probably who aren't listening to this show, need to understand. Hey, stupid, you're taking your hard-earned dollars, you're giving it, whether it's to the RNC or to Trump, and all he's doing is using your money as a slush fund to pay like I paid for his Stormy Daniels to get his pecker pulled by a porn star, right? He's getting other people to constantly pay his bill. Now, if that's not the true definition of the grift, I don't know what is. But, Brian, you've basically covered every president since Reagan. Is Trump's administration, is his group, are they the leakiest administration that you've encountered? <laughs> yeah, actually, they are. There's, you know, there's one thing that Donald Trump has said that's true. He is the most transparent of all presidents I've ever covered. He, he needs to be in front of the camera. So he is. So we all know who he is. And the people who work for him all tell us exactly what's going on. He can't keep anything secret. I mean, the Obama administration was far better at that. And they also prosecuted nine people for the Espionage Act, not their uh, finest moment, uh, you know, who who dropped dime on, on, on the president. But this president, it's like a leaking boat. And it's just it's like watching it, the, the opening scene in uh, uh, Captain Jack Sparrow when he sails into the harbor and his ship sinks and he's he's standing there on a mast in the middle of the water. That's Trump. He's sunk and he's standing in the middle of the water with a proud look on his face. And God only knows why. As someone who knows the Washington press corps intimately, talk to me for a moment about the type of people who wind up as correspondents or anchors for companies like OAN or Newsmax. Were they at one point ever considered credible journalists who simply sold their soul for a steady paycheck, or were they already ideologically pure in the eyes of the right-wing media? I think you got a mixture of both. I think there are people who stumbled into that uh, uh, fold looking for a job. Uh, photographers and technicians and some of the reporters, I think. I know one reporter that, you know, just he was out of work. He uh, auditioned for a, a gig with them and they OAN hired him up in New York. He didn't last long because apparently he he was not uh, um, ideologically uh, in, in cahoots with them. And so he left shortly thereafter. And then there are some who 
thoroughly believe in the ideology and uh, thoroughly believe in the Kool-Aid and will drink it. Um, the press is made up of a lot of different people. And I wouldn't even say that they don't deserve to be there because I, I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear what that um, contingent has to say. I just don't think they should be given favored status by the White House. And that's what Donald Trump has done. Doesn't matter what the situation is. If Donald Trump is appearing in public, if Donald Trump is talking to the press, OAN Newsmax will be there and he will call on them. And there are people who have worked hard their whole lives, have 30, 40 years of experience covering this White House with legitimate questions that Donald Trump will not call on them. So my response to Donald Trump has been to when I, I don't let him get away, if he's not going to call on me, I'm going to ask him the damn question loud enough that he hears it. And if he does call on me, I'm going to ask the question so he damn well hears it. He always seems to call on me when he takes questions, never ceases to amaze me why. But I, I, it, to long story short is, yeah, those people at OAN and, and Newsmax are a mixed bag. Some of them are just there for the gig and some of them are there because they thoroughly believe. Yeah, who do you think actually thoroughly? Do you think Sean Hannity thoroughly believes this right wing, this far right wing um, ideology? Because I know Sean very well. Yeah. All right. Oh, no, no. I know Sean very well. And I'm telling you, it's bullshit. He doesn't believe half the stuff that comes out of no. his mouth. All right. I don't care. I, he could turn around and say, oh, Michael's like, it's all about the cash. There's nothing that Sean Hannity likes more than at the end of the year telling me that this year he made $30 million. He got himself a new plane. He's getting himself exit this. He's bought some extra real estate. That's what Sean Hannity is all about. So when they turn around now, Tucker Carlson, I don't Preaching know to the choir, brother. Right. Preaching to the choir there. Tucker Carlson, I don't know from a hole in the wall. Right. He's another he's another ass, nor do I know Lou Dobbs. But as it relates to Sean Hannity, who's probably Fox News's number one superstar. Right. I know he's full of shit and I don't care what anybody tells me. He could tell me I'm wrong. I know for a fact that I'm right. But I do want since we're talking about Fox, talk to me for a moment about Fox News and the firewall that exists between news and opinion. How do your colleagues on the Fox News side, who by and large try to report the news accurately, unless of course it's about me, view what is happening on prime time <laughs> for Fox and the propaganda that's grinded out on a daily basis by, as we just said, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Lou Dobbs? Well, there is Fox News and there is um, and there is the network. And uh, I know a little of Fox because I worked there for America's Most Wanted for years. And um, they have a bent, they have a tinge, but the news people, there are some very solid news people there, including John Roberts, including Chris Wallace, and they're just trying to do the news. They run into a large roadblock with people on the network side, and they don't want to be associated with Hannity or Dobbs or any of the talking heads. John Roberts just wants to report on the White House. He may get it wrong. He may not get it wrong. That's He's like everybody else. Sometimes he's going to be right. Sometimes he's going to be wrong. He's just there doing his job. Chris Wallace, just there doing his job. The difference is that, you know, you have to remember the background of Fox News. The birth of Fox News came about after the end of the Nixon administration and Roger Ailes. Nixon wanted his own network. Reagan wanted his own network. Roger Ailes got um, 
the wonderful, redoubtable one, you know, Satan's style boy, Mitch McConnell elected the office. They dismantled the FCC, enabling them to create their own network. And they went after, um, you know, Fox to turn it into their network. So there's, you know, that's not even a debatable fact. That's just, that's just fact. That's what it was. So you're going to have that, that bent to it. There's no fairness doctrine anymore. So they're not obligated to, to give a, a, another side of the story. And yet the people that have worked at Fox news have a lot of experience and are among some of the best that are covering the white house, the talking heads, as you said, Hannity, Dobbs, Tucker Carlson, they're, they're just full of shit. That's it. And they're there for money. And I tend not. And that's the difference between opinion and facts. You know, but for me, the way I view journalists, I believe that journalists have a responsibility to fact check. I believe that they have a responsibility yeah. to be accurate. And when, they're, and when they're not accurate, I believe that they have a real obligation in order to reverse the damage that they have done, certainly to at least put out that information that they that they did wrong and to do it in a way that reaches the same number of people that at least learned of the misinformation. But they don't do I that. Agree. They don't do that. No. And, and you know why? Here's why. The government has destroyed the free press, beginning with Reagan and every president since then deregulated. First of all, they got rid of the fairness doctrine because they said that limited free speech. No, what it did was silo free speech. You have you can go to see anything you want. All voices are available, but they're available in silos. So, you know, you want the ultra right, you go to Fox. You want the ultra left, you go to MSNBC. You want something else, you go somewhere else. There's no cross talking. There's no traffic. There's no equality. Then when they removed the limitations on what you could buy, that created Sinclair and that created newspapers buying each other up. What happened? Fewer reporters, because now you're not responsible to the public. You're responsible to your editorial board. When I got into this business, 80% of what you see, reader, here was owned by two dozen companies. Today, 95% of what you see here, he, hear or read, five companies own most of it. And there are twice the number of people on this planet <clears throat> is on the day that I was born, and there are half the number of reporters. Do the math. There are whole parts of the the uh, that go of the government that go unchecked and unreported on. Then the reporters that you hire, you tend to circulate them out after they start making money and hiring new ones, so you can save money. I ran into a producer at at a network in the White House who shall remain nameless, Fox News, and this uh, producer started asking me questions about how do you cover the White House, and I was telling him, I said, "Well, what are you, an intern?" And they go, "No, I'm a senior producer." I said, how old are you? And they said, 24. I said, well, how old's a junior producer? 12? I mean, there's just the, the, <laughs> the systemic and institutional knowledge that we used to have doesn't exist. So you have, Michael, you have reporters covering the White House and covering news that don't understand what their responsibility is. Many of them not have, have not been taught it. And the people that are overseeing their work don't respect it and don't do it themselves. And that's because of government. That's because the federal government decided to destroy the First Amendment, and this is what we're left with. So I agree with you. We should be doing more fact-checking. There are, it's not <clears throat> hopeless. There are people who do know how to do it, but we need to hire those people and pay them to stay there and mentor younger, you know. I, when I went to the White House for this first time, the first two reporters I met were Helen Thomas and I already knew Sam Donaldson. And Helen 
brought me in and she said, and this is why I call my podcast, just ask the question. She said, Brian, it doesn't matter what the question is. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what the answer is. It doesn't matter if they answer it. Just ask the question. That way they cannot deny that the issue has been put before them. And Sam said something smart like, yeah, and stick with me and I'll teach you how to yell so the questions get heard. And uh, Helen said something smart about Sam. And Sam said, hey, Helen, it's okay to have an unexpressed thought. And then Helen said, Sam, when it comes to you, I have a lot of unexpressed thoughts. So, you know, it was a different time. And we don't have the institutional knowledge now that we had then. So you're absolutely right. We are obligated to correct ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with being wrong. We're human beings. We make mistakes. Unless you're a journalist, right? And then they find that it's insulting to their reputation. I agree with what you're saying, but I see it a little different. And I'm going to tell you where I think the biggest sure. problem is. The biggest problem is the internet, right? Everything is about ratings, whether it's the television show, whether it's the articles. And with the articles, it's all about the clicks, the number of people that click onto it. And they right. that's all they care about. So they're willing to say things that they know are 100% inaccurate. They don't have the decency, Chris Wallace, to make a <laughs> phone call to ask you your point of view, Chris Wallace. Right? And because of because of Trump's chaos and the bullshit that he creates every single day. There, you know what Chris Wallace's comment to me after that was? He goes, We're yeah. on, we're already on to something else. It doesn't really matter, right? Nobody really gives a shit about the story and so on. I'm sorry, that's a that's a cop out. I, I don't agree with that. I and and uh, that's not correct. And it Look, Donald Trump is responsible for a great turnover in uh, the daily news cycle, you know, and the Internet is. But I think ultimately the Internet will be a solution, not a problem. I think it's got to be regulated like uh, television. And I think, look, anybody can call themselves a journalist. And if you want to call yourself a journalist, a I don't you can call yourself Melba Toast. Doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the facts that you present. Are they verifiable? So to me, a journalist is at least someone who has a copy editor. So all copy is fact-checked before it airs. We are so driven. You're absolutely right about that point. We are so driven because of the news cycle to get out there first that we forgot that we need to be out there accurately. It, I can't be first anymore, and I gave up trying. This cell phone that I have in my hand and a guy witnessing a, a plane crash will put it on his cell phone and put, and, and put it up on the Internet before I can even get there, before we can start our engines to do a live shot. Somebody else has already reported it. I can go on the South Lawn when the president is there, record him answering my question, upload it before the networks, and I'm there and they're there. I can get there before the networks because of the technology available to us today. The, the diff difference is you need fact checkers and you need copy editors. So let's talk about somebody that also doesn't know how to tell the truth. Kaylee McEnany. So describe <laughs> just, one of my favorite. <laughs> just describe for me what it's like to have to deal with Kaylee McEnany day in and day out. Does she ever let the mask slip and reveal that there is actually a human being inside? Or is she always on? All the time, even when she's off. She's a Nazi cheerleader. Uh, her her press her press briefings when she had them boiled down to this: uh, five minutes of telling us why we suck and showing us Nancy Pelosi getting a haircut for some reason I don't know. Um, 
a few questions. She'll take them from Newsmax and from OAN and maybe one or two others. Another five minutes wrapping up as to why we suck. And then she'll drop the, or the Democrats suck. Then she'll drop the mic and walk out. It's like attending a high school pep rally. And that, that facade, I haven't seen it drop. She doesn't tell the truth. She said on day one, I'll never tell a lie, which was a lie. That was her first. And she avoids me like the plague in the White House. I mean, she goes upstairs and locks herself into her office. I won't see her if I, I'm there. Um, I, I, I know she gets along better with others, but uh, not with me. And she doesn't. She got upset because I asked Donald Trump was September 23rd, his last briefing in the Brady briefing room. And look, I sat down and I, I was surprised. I raised my hand. <laughs> he called on me first. I said, okay, here we go. Win, lose, or draw. Do you agree to a, a peaceful transfer of power? Whether you, you know, win, lose, or draw. And he went nuts. And then the next day she, you know, said that it was my, I was deranged and I was trying to create a, uh, you know, some kind of uh, something that wouldn't exist. The simple fact of the matter is no, I've never seen her drop the facade. Um, I, I believe that she is one of those people who are going to be very, uh, very hampered in her post-administration uh, life, but I could be wrong. Well, since we're speaking of Kaylee, on November 12th, you retweeted the following from the recount. When asked about whether Joe Biden will receive access to intelligence briefings, Kaylee McEnany said, that would be a question more for the White House. Well, Kaylee, you are the White House. You're actually the White House press secretary, even though that yes. she's constantly appearing on Fox as a Trump 2020 advisor and a cheerleader. Can you describe for my listeners the controversy here and the game that she is playing by appearing in two different capacities? Well, she's lying, which is what she always does. And she's always and, and that was the most disingenuous thing you could say coming out of the White House. Um, is that uh, go see the White House? You are the White House. Answer the damn question. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it, to me. I just don't get it. But take the go a little bit further here. So on on November 11th, Joe Lockhart wrote, like Joseph McCarthy before her. Press secretary says she has pages and pages of proof of election fraud. Yet when a Trump lawyer was asked in court under oath. He admitted that there was no evidence. What is really with McEnany with her fake binders? Because it's becoming something of a meme at this point. How can she continue to use these props that have absolutely no basis and certainly they're not credible? Because who out there right now is believing that there is evidence? Is it purely for right-wing media? And is she uninterested in the groans from the rest of us? She doesn't care about anything except her paycheck right now. And she's going to be really up, you know, what kind of creek after she's out of the White House. No one believes it. Well, the 70 million voters believe her but or believe him or want to believe him. But the rest of us know better. And the uh, simple fact of the matter is it's not going to get better until he's gone. January 20th. Well, on September 23rd, you asked the question that was heard around the world. When you were called upon by Trump at the White House, and this is what you were saying before, win, lose, a draw in this election. Will you commit here today to a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Now, I'm sure that you'll acknowledge I said that 20 months ago 
when I stood before the House Oversight Committee before the late, great Elijah Cummings, really, truly a decent human being, I said that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. His response was that we're going to have to see what happens. Now, you know that this set off alarm bells and a complete frenzy of fucking coverage, you know, obviously with good reason. In the history of this country, no president has ever, ever refused to commit to the peaceful transfer of power. What do you think was going on in his mind when he answered your question? Was he just simply shooting from the hip, right, um, as, you know, his won't or... Was he waiting to slip, you know, this into a new cycle and you just happened to answer the question? I mean, what the fuck was going on here? Because I've seen this now going back 20 months when I when I testified and you could just go, you could look at it on on YouTube or something. I do not believe that Donald Trump would ever accept the results unless he won. And I do not believe that there will be a peaceful transfer of power. Well, I don't think there's going to be civil war. On January 20th, we'll have a new president. The uh, election will be certified. The electors will come in in December. They'll cast their ballots. And at that point in time, Joe Biden, the president-elect, will have most of the power. On January 20th, he takes it over. At that point in time, as I spoke to uh, members of the um, Secret Service and, of course, to U.S. Marshals, they know how to they said, look, we know how to deal with squatters. So on January 20th, if Donald Trump doesn't want to leave, he's going to leave. Now, I personally think that at some point in time, Donald Trump gives up the facade and he will leave. He'll never concede. He'll never admit he lost. He will go to his grave screaming that he got screwed and he doesn't care that it's screwing over the American public. He doesn't scare that care that's uh, screwing over the Democratic process. Donald Trump can't admit defeat and he won't, but he will take advantage of and use the people that support him and he'll keep doing that. And at some point in time, there are members of his staff who think he, he will bow out gracefully because there's a, a nice little attention at the inauguration of the transfer of power. So there's a, there's a great chance for Donald Trump to be in the spotlight and Donald Trump loves the spotlight. Uh, personally, I think it's gonna be a very difficult uh, for Donald Trump to give up and walk away. This is not about Donald Trump blocking himself into a room in the White House and not transferring power. That's not what, what I'm referring to. I don't believe that Donald Trump comes back to the White House after Christmas, New Year. After Mar-a-Lago, right. after Christmas. A lot of people are saying that. Yes, they're all copying exactly what I had said you know, several weeks back. But here's the thing, because I know him. I know him so well. In Mar-a-Lago, he gets his ass kissed by every one of the members. He walks into a room, they stand up, they cheer, they they applaud for him. You think that it's, you know, um Kim Jong-un, um, just you know, in North Korea. That's exactly what he wants. He needs that attention because he has a very fragile ego. So it's not about locking himself up in the White House. It's more about the transfer of power in the way that we have done it historically, where the president-elect becomes part of the process so that there's a seamless transition on January 20th. He'll never do that. He will not. I also do not believe that he will show up to the inauguration because Donald Trump's biggest fear 
is that the cameras, you're right, will be on him, except they will be on him in his mind that he is the loser, something that he cannot accept. His Again, his fragile ego cannot accept the fact that he lost. For him to have to be sitting and watching as Joe Biden has his hand up and accepting right the the responsibility of president of the United States of America that is not something that Donald Trump can graciously allow to happen and so he'd rather very much like the Washington correspondence dinner he doesn't want them to look at the way that his face is grimaced and and whether he smiles he looks up he looks down he's afraid of what the media is going to say about him so i do not believe that he ends up going to the inauguration under any circumstance. Personally, I believe that you are correct. I told you what others believe. What I believe is that he may go to Mar-a-Lago for Thanksgiving and not come back. He may go to Mar-a-Lago at Christmas and not come back. He may come back from Mar-a-Lago. Look, it's Donald Trump. And to be honest with you, Michael, if if they brought in a dancing bear on a unicycle with a little uh, clown hat tooting a horn and saying, here's our new press secretary, they're going to brief you now. I wouldn't I, I, w- I would just say, OK, it's Monday because th- th- anything they do doesn't surprise me anymore. But if I'm a betting man, I'm betting that he doesn't come back. He doesn't go to the uh, to, to the uh, inauguration. And he certainly won't invite the Bidens over to the White House like Obama invited him to the White House. I don't think that that's being a good sport is not in his nature. Uh, being an adult is not in his nature. He He's. He's a perpetual seven-year-old spoiled brat. And, you know, thankfully, we're about to close the chat and close the book on him and move on. At least now you and I are on the exact same page. (laughs) I want to switch gears for a moment and return to now your infamous confrontation with Sebastian Gorka. For my listeners who weren't there, can you walk us through what happened and how close were you to actually coming to blows? Uh, <laughs> I was never actually close to coming to blows, not in the White House. That's that's not that's not up for grabs. Uh, I, we were at the it was the um, some kind of media event for the uh, bloggers that support Donald Trump. And so at the end, all of his fans had seats. All of the regular press were standing up. He makes some statement. And as he leaves, I, I said, uh, hey, Mr. President, you mind staying and taking a few questions from the press? Somebody turned around and taunted me and said, oh, he's already spoken to the real press. Boo-hoo-hoo. And I just I did a Rodney Dangerfield. And I said, oh, I'm telling you, there's a crew that's ready to be demonically possessed. And um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, Gorka heard it and came uh, storming over. I said, look, we can talk about this here. We can go outside and talk about it for a long time. Doesn't matter to me. So he wanted to get up on his high horse. I, I guess he needed that fish oil salesman deal that he got later out of it. And so he went nuts. And there were others in, uh, of his ilk who thought that uh, I was threatening to kick his ass. And, uh, you know, that's <laughs> I am a football coach. I, I don't I don't threaten to kick your ass. I make you do up downs and push ups. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Could you imagine seeing Sebastian Gorka doing 100 burpees? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not going to happen. So when your White House pass was briefly revoked, yeah. you were seemingly everywhere for a few news cycles. I'm curious now, 
What was going on behind the scenes with the Trump administration and its army of MAGA trolls that were targeting you? Explain to my listeners what was going on there. Well, I got a lot of death threats. Um, I had uh, a couple of people I had to come over to the house for a couple of days, a couple of cops. Uh, somebody bashed out the rear window of my uh, of one of my cars. Uh, I don't know if that was related or not. So, I, I mean, it happened, but it did, you know, was it just random? I don't know. And then um, I, I got the best First Amendment attorney in, in the business, Ted Boutros, who had, had uh, helped out Jim Acosta and later helped out Mary Trump. And uh, Ted uh, took the case and we uh, sued the uh, Trump administration in court. We won. The Trump people went nuts. They still they still had, uh, you know, Stephanie Grisham never had a she was the one who yanked my press pass. She never had a briefing. In the year that she was there, we never saw her. <laughs> so I, I can't say that the relationship got worse. It didn't exist to begin with. So after she left, Kaylee came in. Uh, by this time, we're in. Uh, they're appealing. They've lost the appeal twice now, and it's sitting there waiting. And apparently, it won't go anywhere unless Trump decides to take it to the Supreme Court before he leaves office in January. I think he's got other fish to fry. But um, it, that's that's behind the scenes. It was madness. And the thing was, is what really, I guess, shocked me is the whole time <laughs> all of this is going on. The president is still having press briefings. He's still showing up on the South Lawn. And every time I'm in front of him, he still calls on me. No, he, so he must like you. You know, he I, really must like you. He winked at me a couple of times. I went upstairs in the press office. I said, does this mean we're dating? So <laughs> I, at, the, at the last briefing where he didn't speak, the one in the Rose Garden, where he told us what a great job he did with a coronavirus vaccine, he caught my eye and I went back at him. <laughs> so <laughs> he still didn't call on me. He, he ran off. But I figured, you know, he's been winking at me for a year and a half. I'd wink back at him. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> he's not winking at you. It's a nervous twitch. So let's talk for a moment. <laughs> let's talk for a moment about GSA head Emily Murphy. What's her background and her level of allegiance to Trump as a political appointee? Because. She has a history of controversy already for what happened with the D.C. Trump Hotel. Can you explain what's happening there behind the scenes? And is she likely to acquiesce? Well, at some point in time, she's going to have to acquiesce because it's going to be a, the letter of law. Yeah, apparently by her actions, she's a Trump loyalist. Um, I don't know her all that well. I just know her from her actions and her inability to answer a straight question when put to her by a reporter. So I would say that she's she's a Trumplican. She's going to have to acquiesce at some point in time. And even if she doesn't, it's not going to keep the, the only people that she's hurting are us. As Biden made the point of saying. If we're delaying this transition or impeding the transition, it's the American people who are suffering. It's not Joe Biden. He, Joe Biden can get access to the uh, like he's getting his access to the, the uh, security briefings via uh, his vice president who sits on the committee. She's still in the she still sits there. There are others who do. They're in the Democratic Party who can feed him that information. He can take the money out that he needs to do his transition. He could take that from other sources and replenish it once he gets into office. What they've done, what she's done it, it is create an unnecessary roadblock in the road, but she can't 
What she can't do is wall off the road. It's a shame. It's horrifying. It's exactly what this country doesn't stand for. And yet it's another example of how Donald Trump and his loyalists continue to impede democracy simply to feed his ego, the con man's ego. And that's all that it's ever been. Well, last week on November 9th, you actually retweeted a Washington Post article and you pulled the following quote. The media never fully learned how to cover Trump, but they still might have saved democracy. Explain to me what the Post was saying at that moment and how might the press have done a better job in covering Trump? Or let me add one more thing. Should the press have covered Trump the way that they covered him? Because I believe that it's really the press that won Trump the election in 2016. As I said in the beginning, we helped create him by because uh, he was a media whore and we love media whores. And here's a name calling in and, you know, oh, it's Donald Trump. He's calling in to be on the show. Put him on. Put him on. Oh, wait a minute. He's running for president. Put him on. Put him on. Because other politicians, <laughs> we played into our own weakness. We try so hard to get these people on camera, so hard to get these people, you know, uh, quoted, so hard to cover them. And Donald Trump made it easy. He called in. And the, and so all that free airtime he got, we we fed the fire what it needed, oxygen. And it created a freaking blaze that has just ravaged the, this country for four years, the Donald Trump inferno. And we fed it. What the what the Post was saying and what I think and it's what I kind of what I said in a column a couple of weeks ago, we screwed up. We didn't recognize Donald Trump. Some of us did, but a lot of the people who run the newsrooms didn't, didn't recognize that Donald Trump was a con man. We didn't recognize that from the beginning. So we covered him like any other politician, and that was wrong. We should have been far more uh, <clears throat> subservient to the facts, and, and we should have been more loyal to our to what we really do, which is fact-checking before we put the SOB on the air. We didn't do that. How did we work? Ultimately, we worked because we continued to cover the story. Donald Trump bullshits us. Donald Trump seemingly has, you know, he's like a political energizer bunny and keeps going. There are those of us who just keep reporting and you keep hammering him with the questions. But I have asked him some of the toughest questions he's been asked. You just show up, you do your damn job, and you let the chips fall where they may. And because he made our job easier by being so forthcoming to be on camera because he's got to have it, he needs the attention, that was ultimately his downfall, too. He had played well to him coming up, but once he got into the seat of power, it became increasingly obvious that he was full of shit and that he couldn't govern, and the press continued to cover the story, and we nailed him on it. Nailed him time and time again. Fox did. Oh, OAN did. Newsmax did. By giving him his his, you know, his pedestal from which to preach, you could sit there and you don't have to say anything but go, wow, that guy's full of shit. It doesn't matter what we say. Ultimately, 75 million people decided this guy's full of shit and turned out in record numbers to vote his ass out of office. So we that's how I think we did. Sure. But look at even what's happened now. So some of the news um, agencies like CNN, they have a fact checking, a reality fact check on the spot as the man is talking. And as soon as yeah. as soon as Trump is finished, you get, you know, you get people get and say, 
Donald Trump just told us 15 lies in a matter of eight minutes. You know, it's like, what? And then they go through each and every one. I mean, it's to me, I just find it incredible that they talk about how he lied in four years over 30 some odd thousand times, and yet they still cover him. Now, I get it. He's the president, but you don't That's cover, why we cover him. Sure, but you have to stop covering the lie because it's unfair. It's unfair. You know, I was sitting in the park the other day. I'm allowed out for two hours a day. And this guy <laughs> comes over and he starts talking to me. And he starts spewing Trump bullshit about the election that he knows for a fact because he saw it on the Internet that they had a box and that box was full <laughs> of Trump ballots so, because it said on the box Trump ballots. So I, I, I didn't understand. So I said to him, sir, I think that that's not accurate information. And I tried to explain to him the difference between, you know, being uninformed and being misinformed. And that's the danger of Donald Trump. If you listen to him, right, you're misinformed. If you read and you listen to what he is saying, then you're uninformed because it's a lie. Right. And right. this is the problem with covering somebody the way that journalists covered him when the man lies like the way he breathes. Well, and we, to be quite honest, have never covered anybody quite like Donald Trump before. But we all got I mean, you you yourself. Do, do you think you got conned by Don? Yes, I was definitely part of the cult. I, I own that. And um, I'll take that part of my life, the stupidity. Um to the to my grave but to you to the point you you got conned we've all gotten conned by the don relax i'm just tired of being conned by him i i have tried not to get conned by him uh because like i said he reminds me of a family member that i that was very close to me i'm going every time he opens his mouth it's shit it's just bullshit and you could tell that when and I had the advantage of having someone in my family who was like that, so I could recognize it, I think, off the top. But we all got conned by Don in the last five or six years. The entire we got conned into electing him to office. Some of them are still conned by Don and think that he's, you know, the be all end all of, of everything. And then there are people who woke up and said, Holy sh I got conned. Now, what do you do? Do you do you fight back against that? The press has. I mean, we got and, and if we don't admit that we got conned by him, then shame on us because we're not perfect. So let me ask you this. Let's talk for a quick second then about Mike Pompeo. Oh, another idiot. Right. On a purely human level of all of the Trump sycophants, is Pompeo the most loathe figure in the White House <laughs> or does Mark Meadows win that contest? Well, for me, it's Mark Meadows uh, because I have to deal with him and I don't I, he is an idiot. And, and it's for me. Dealing with Mark Meadows up close and personal is he reminds me of one of my cousins who uh, always wore short pants and got picked last for kickball. I mean, he's that guy. Uh, but most of the people left in the Donald Trump administration are those people. They, they and they want to make the rest of the world pay because, you know, they got picked on when they were kids. Um, so that's their turn to be the bully. I find Mark Meadows the most loathsome. But honestly, it's what William Barr has done to the DOJ that I think is is probably, I, I think we can recover from it fairly easy, uh, hopefully, but that was potentially, and he is potentially the most damaging uh, human being 
internally. Mike Pompeo, uh, in dealing with our allies and others, is the most damaging externally. Mike Pompeo is an ass, uh, a braying ass of biblical proportions with about as much brain power as I have in a wash rag. But that's just how I feel about him. <laughs> well, you're not wrong about Bill Barr. I mean, Bill Barr is the one who remanded me back to prison the second time because I wouldn't waive my First Amendment constitutional right and not agree to publish my book Disloyal. And so standing there, <laughs> you could imagine I was the first person that was ever treated like this. I mean, I should be putting the Guinness Book, you know, of world's records for, you know, the. I mean, Bill Barr needs to be prosecuted for what he has done. You you cannot he incarcerate. Well, well, you cannot incarcerate somebody because they refuse to waive their constitutional right. I mean, you are right. Bill Barr is not he is the most dangerous person on the inside. That's how I see it. I, I got jailed for not waiving my constitutional rights, my First Amendment rights and a federal hell, I got jailed four times. That's part and parcel of how the DOJ works. But what he did what Bill Barr has done is turned the, the the real crime that Bill Barr committed in my mind is turning the DOJ into Donald Trump's personal attorney. That's where I think he has really crossed the line and he should be answerable for that. I believe it is a crime. I believe at some point in time he will face repercussions for it. But, you know, then again, no sitting president, no president, no former president has ever gone to jail. And and so I think Donald Trump's probably going to be safe, but Bill Barr may not. And uh, OK, so Bill Barr, let's say, is the first to be prosecuted. Who do you think would be the second and third? And obviously keeping and excluding Donald Trump from that list. I believe Donald Trump will end up incarcerated. Southern District of New York is going to end up getting him. If, I not, think. if not him, then it'll be the state or it'll be the district attorney. Yeah. Southern District of New York, I believe, not the federal, but the state. I think the people that are most likely to face legal scrutiny are, I think, Meadows, I think um, Bill Barr, I, I think uh, uh, Pompeo, I think all of his children, Kellyanne Conway for the Hatch Act violations alone are, are frightening. And I think every member of that administration by like Kaylee, uh, Kaylee McEnany. I mean, that what we talked about earlier about you have to refer to the White House about that. Well, since that's her job and she evidently abdicated her job at that moment in time, it's clearly a violation of the Hatch Act to do what she did. She has violated the Hatch Act many times. So she may face and out of all of them, she would probably be the, the first sacrificial lamb thrown to the fire would be Kaylee McEnany. I believe the first one, because it's an easy slam dunk and it sets a tone. And then I think after that, going after the kids is going to be problematic and Kellyanne Conway will be uh, problematic, but I, I, she'll cut a deal if she's indicted. I, I think that we're staring at, uh, at easily maybe a dozen indictments after the, uh, after this administration is over with, you know, kind of like Nixon, you know, at, you know, remember Mitchell, he went to jail. Right, right. So, you know, Brian, as we're wrapping up onto the hour, I want to ask you this question. It will be many years before the dust settles on the Trumpism that has been created. Who do you see taking up the mantle of the MAGA wing of the Republican Party going forward? That's a damn good question. First of all, Donald Trump will end. Right. He's going to go away. 
the fascism, the American fascism will not end. Don's the con and the fascism is the real enemy. And he doesn't care about fascism any more than he cares about Proud Boys or you or me or anyone. Donald Trump cares about Donald Trump. And he found easy marks and conned them. And they were easy marks because they were people that were marginalized in the American society and rightly so. Don saw it, saw a bunch of them and put together and cobbled together a, a group and a base that he deepened his support to and didn't widen. After he leaves, the fascism will still exist. Who steps up at this point? There will be a battle for it. We may not have seen who steps up yet. Right now, Mitch McConnell would seem to be the heir apparent, but he's an aging, you know, Southern idiot who's, you know, better off laying bricks and being a, a, you know, a representative for the public. And he's just like Donald Trump. I interviewed Mitch McConnell in 78. And the night before I went to interview him, I, my uncle, who was a lawyer and had worked with him, he said, look, if you're going to go interview Mitch McConnell, remember, he's about one thing. And I said, what's that? And he goes, Mitch McConnell. Now, that hasn't changed in 39 years. He's the heir apparent. Who are the younger members of the far right? Is it a Matt Gates? He hasn't the stones. Is it, is it Jim Jordan? No, he's got too much under. He, he can't even wear a jacket. They're, the real star from the far right, I don't think has yet appeared or is a marginal player at this point and will step up. It's likely to be someone young. However, if we do our job well, if Joe Biden comes into office and he's actually able to in some way pull off the idea of unity, bringing the far left and the far right closer to the middle, if he's able to just get people to wear their damn masks, if he's able to do any of that, then it makes the Trumpism and the fascism dissolve a little. So there may not be someone that that takes over the mantle. What you could be staring at is the Lincoln Project taking back over the Republican Party. And that would be a joyous occasion for all of us if those people who are more centered and and cogent are uh, are enabled to do what they want to do. But we'll see. Honestly, I think that at the end of the day, there will be someone who will take over the fascist mantle that Donald Trump set up. But they won't be as successful as Donald because they're not as good at conning people. What we really need to worry about in this country is a competent con man. Donald Trump was incompetent. But if there's someone competent who takes over that place, we're all screwed. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And Brian, let me say thank you uh, for your time today and your insight. And um, I'm glad you didn't punch Sebastian Gorka in the head. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I'm a football coach. My my inclination was to tell him to drop and give me 20. <laughs> yeah, 20 hamburgers. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Let me ask, can I ask you a quick question? Of course. My question, I've always wanted to ask you this. What do you regret most about your relationship with Donald Trump? What, what do you take away? And do you take away anything good from it? So the answer is, yeah, I did. Um, it certainly sharpened my my skills in terms of real estate. I've always been a real estate deal junkie and I've owned quite a bit of real estate prior to this nightmare. Not all the time with him was bad. Uh, there, He's a very charming person when he needs to be. I'm sure you'll acknowledge that. People yeah. people will turn around. I'll never forget Javier Palomares from the, um, H, um, from the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. I brought him in because... I wanted to resolve the issue when Trump, of course, said that all Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers and murderers, et cetera. And when Javier left that meeting, 
he, the first thing he said is, wow, he's very different than what I thought he was going to be. Because Donald Trump can be charming. And there were times that he was incredibly good to me. But what I regret most is not listening to my wife, to my daughter, and to my son when they said to me, the guy's a scumbag. You got you to gotta leave. I didn't, I didn't work for him for the money. You don't need the money. You don't need to work for him. Leave. There were so many other people that I could have worked with, building up companies on our own um, and doing things for. Lying to Melania, even to this day, bothered me. It wasn't my right to do that. And actually bullying a lot of people to take settlements with Trump. And I don't mean sexually or anything. I'm talking about where he screwed them over in business. Yeah, uh, it's just, you know, some of whom were companies that were owned by friends of mine that I didn't even know that it was their company. So there are many regrets that I have. I outline, you know, a lot of them in terms of stories throughout the book, disloyal. But at the end of the day, you know, I have I have a lot of regrets. Um, but my real biggest regret is not listening to my wife, my daughter and my son when they told me to leave, run and get the hell away from him. But I didn't. And that's my mistake. And that's, that's my cross to bear. Any word of warning you would give to others about Donald Trump? You, I know you gave him, and I was there in court when you said what you said, but to someone who's, who believes him and says, look, he's doing what's best for America, we should keep him. What do you tell those people? I said it once before, Donald Trump is a racist. He's a con man. He's a fraud. I've also turned around and said that he's a sexist, a misogynist, a xenophobe, a homophobe, Islamophobe, anti-Semite, and a germaphobe, right? This is not the man that you want to follow. And if your children acted in the way that Donald Trump acts, you would have, you, you would have given him a smack in the ass, told him to stand in the corner, and told them, you don't walk out of that corner until you learn to be a human being, because that's not the way that I grew up. You know, my parents used to then say to me when all this was happening, you know, you're you're very different than you were, um, you know, when you were a child. Um, and that's my biggest regret. And, you know, God bless you. That's exactly I, I have said that in the briefing room to other reporters. I go, I feel like he's a seven year old and I got to smack him on the ass and send him to the corner and tell him to grow up. And and I that's you and I must have grown up with the same parents. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is true. Well, Brian, let me thank you again. And uh, hope to have you back on soon. Sure, anytime. You be. I'd well. like to have you on my show. We'll that's, we'll that's have fun. Deal. That's a deal. You got right. it. Be well. All right, brother. Be safe. This moment of ascertainment shines a light on the moral cowardice and complicity of Trump's so-called red wall. These Republican enablers, who either through silence, equivocation, or outright encouragement, gave President Trump the necessary cover to mount his baseless legal assault on the election. The masthead of the Washington Post declares, democracy dies in darkness. So it's time we name and shame those leaders who allowed Donald J. Trump to run roughshod over the Constitution and frankly, use it to wipe his ass. The disgusting stain shall be the legacy of Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, Roy Blunt, Kevin McCarthy, Devin Nunes, Ted Cruz, and countless others who were either too afraid or too cowered by the cult of Donald Trump to do anything to stop the madness. What makes it worse is that none of them even believed in the result. It was an act of cynicism cloaked in the language of the law. 
rather than recognize the will of the people, these men chose to hide from the vitriol of Trump's MAGA base. But now, there is nowhere for them to hide as the transition has officially commenced. Suddenly, all the president's men must face the circular firing squad of history and the savagery of their own base who are looking for scalps. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustav, and it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. It's clear to you that de-icing the wings will not be done in a jiffy. You look for phone outlets but see none. Only photos of phone outlets. A voice announces your gate is now 39C-12B-9A. It's like musical chairs if musical chairs made you sob in the pet relief area. A child picking his nose stares. His parents have abandoned him. The airport will raise him now. Don't let flight delays ruin your vacation. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.